you're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 41 of the Crisis in the Church series. In this episode, we're joined by Mr. James Vogel, the Communications Director of the U.S. District of the Society of St. Pius X, and we're going to be walking through the history of the SSPX up to the point when Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated the four bishops in 1988. But it really doesn't seem like history. In fact, some of the events that shaped the SSPX in its early years seem like they are repeated in the 1990s, in the early 2000s, and again, certainly during the pontificate of Pope Francis. We'll also see how another future pontiff, Pope Benedict, was a major influence in the society's early years when he was negotiating on behalf of the Vatican as Cardinal Ratzinger. Through these 20 years of history, we'll see how the Archbishop reacted both to the trials he faced as the only defender of tradition in the Church and how he reacted to the rapid blessings bestowed upon the society, and we'll learn how to face the same today. Let's join Mr. Vogel right now. the SSPX podcast and our next episode on the crisis in the church series and happy to welcome for the first time to this series. And I, we've, I've had you on in the podcast before, um, but welcoming Mr. Jim Vogel. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Andrew? Good, good. Uh, for those people who are not super familiar with who you are, could you give us just a 10 second intro or something? Oh, sure. Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief of Angelus Press, so I oversee mainly the editorial side of things, uh, do some work on the communication side as well, and uh, that's why I guess i am uh, been on the podcast before and I'm doing this episode as well. Fantastic. Well, yeah, we, uh, we are having a uh, layperson on uh, this podcast for the first time, and it's not because there were no other priests who were available to do this episode on the history of the SSPX, but you have given... Uh, this talk or a talk like this or this sort of a interview uh, many times before. So uh, it's kind of old hat for you uh, and you have a lot of the details. So uh, we figured it would make sense for you to, for you to join us. Um, Last week we talked about the mission of the SSPX. We kind of went into the why of the SSPX. Now we're going to get into the when and where and all of those details. And we're going to go up to 1988, which if you know anything about the SSPX, you know that that's uh, an important year. We'll get to that. Um, but where do we start when we talk about the history of the SSPX, Jim? So, uh, you know, on the one hand, you could say, let's start in 1970. That is the sort of birthday of the society. And we'll get into the details there. I'm going to start a little bit earlier because as Father Reed mentioned last week, uh, there's this there's this period of time where Archbishop Lefebvre has resigned as the Superior General of the Holy Ghost Fathers. That's 1968. And then the Society of St. Pius X is founded in 1970. So you have this this kind of two-year gap. And I think it's useful or profitable to look at those two years because they do shed some light on on why the Society was founded and really what Archbishop Lefebvre was doing in that two-year period. So if you don't mind, let's, let's start in 1968. Let's start at the resignation of Archbishop Lefebvre from the Holy Ghost Fathers, and then we'll we'll kind of go from okay. there if that makes if that makes sense. Um, and by the way, I think I, I could I could mention this at any point, but most of this is is stolen from Angelus Press books, which I encourage everyone to read. There's only so much we can cover in one podcast, so this is going to be a very high level look at yeah 1968 to 1988. And so um, I can mention the books uh, at any time. I'm, certainly the biography, or I should say biographies of Bishop Tissier at this point are, are invaluable. The Apologia Trilogy of Michael Davies. And uh, I would also recommend, uh, because we're going to talk about the 1970s, this 
as far as the Archbishop's works go, it's uh, it's probably one of the the lesser known titles. It's a book called Vatican Encounter. It's really a book length interview that we publish. Uh, it was done in 1976. It sheds a lot of light. Um, into this period of time we're discussing. So I do, I do recommend all of those. And, uh, and I guess I'll start from there. Those are where you want to go for more details. But, um, you know, okay. let's, so 1968, Archbishop Lefebvre retires. Uh, he's, he's 63, which is fairly young in the world of bishops. And uh, his only formal job at this point in Rome, he's actually a consultor to the uh, Sacred Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith. In fact, his main sort of job is he's in charge of, uh, or he's, he's in charge of the group that's responsible for catechisms in Africa, for obvious reasons, considering his past. It's actually a post he holds all the way through 1972. So even after the Society of St. Pius X is founded, he, he continues to hold that job. But as Bishop Tissier notes in the biography, he's, he's kind of eager to do more than just this, right? He's got, he's got a little bit of, of, of life left in him. So his time is mainly his own, and he has, uh, you know, more or less two ideas uh, that, are, that are in his mind. He's, on the one hand, he's got these friendly bishops that he worked with primarily at the council, conservative bishops that were interested in fighting the progressive movement through the media. So journals, uh, you know, bulletins, newsletters, things like that. And then, of course, the thing that was most dear to his heart, what Father Reed talked about last week, the idea of an international seminary. So you have, uh, on the one hand, he does start with about 30 friendly bishops. He starts a multilingual bulletin for bishops, um, and in his words, to help take practical measures against progressivism and in favor of a sound interpretation of the council. And this will evolve into an international information service for a traditionalist press. You know, he had contacts all across the world, England, Spain, France, and elsewhere. Um, but really, it was the seminary that was sort of dear to his heart. In fact, there was a fellow Holy Ghost father, um, Father Michael O'Carroll. He was something of a confidant to the archbishop. And uh, Father O'Carroll later recounted that the archbishop said to him, if ever I have to leave the congregation, the Holy Ghost Fathers at the time, I will found a traditional seminary. And in three years, I'll have 150 seminarians. It's pretty close, actually, to what happens. But, um, you know, yeah. so anyway, there are some attempts in this time period, 1968 to 1970, he, he attempts to start a journal among the bishops. But things are getting a little too delicate for most of the bishops. And they his friendly his friends among the Episcopacy gradually sort of drop away. And then uh, there are these sort of charming things. He's, he's trying all these things. In 1968 and 1969, he actually rents a little storefront in Rome and tries to run a bookstore, a multilingual international bookstore for, for good Catholic books. Um, and that doesn't really pan out either. But um, what was successful excuse me, in 1969, uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of uh, fledgling journals at the time around the world, different languages, and he calls a sort of congress or summit in Rome. This is May of 1969, uh, sorry, March of 1969, and I think uh, he has 37 journals represented from 14 countries, which shows the kind of moral authority that Archbishop Lefebvre had at the time. And um, so he's he's calling together these, and and these would not be traditionalist journals; these are just Catholic journals. And maybe he knows the the publishers or the authors, and, and he's trying to call them together. And what what is he trying to do? Trying to get them to 
these are largely, I guess you would call them traditionalist journals, right? These are these okay. are journals that were founded in the wake of the council, uh, different languages, different people. A lot of them were lay run. And so uh, from what it seems, uh, it, it was sort of a strategy session for Archbishop Lefebvre to get everyone okay. working together. Resources were scarce. Um, <clears throat> people were still trying to figure out. And keep in mind, this is still before the new, ma- I mean, the new mass is coming clearly, but the new mass hasn't been promulgated yet. So uh-huh. <clears throat> there's a lot of different angles that were at, at play there. And you'll see, here's, a, I'll, I'll lead into this actually, because it's probably the most significant thing that he does, Archbishop Lefebvre, in this period as far as organizing people. And that's the, uh, well, we know it colloquially as the Ottaviani intervention, the, the short uh, critical study of the Novus Ordo Mise. So uh, the new mass, everyone knew it was coming. It was going to be uh, released in November of 1969. So in May and June of 1969, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre, with the help of some friends, they, they organized this group of people to, to really write a formal document to submit to the Holy Father to express their, their concerns. Uh, and uh, so he organized, so there's a Dominican priest that writes it. Archbishop Lefebvre sort of coordinates the meetings. Um, and they do eventually, um, uh, you know, they, well, they get two cardinals to sign it. That's why it's called the Ottaviani Intervention. They get cardinals Ottaviani and Bacci to sign it, which which was kind of a big deal. They send the document to the CDF. Um, and, you know, apart from the change in the definition of the mass, uh, the right of the new mass is left unchanged. It's very disheartening. And so that's another sort of sign for the archbishop, because during all of this time period, 68, 69, he's hearing from conservative, Father Reed talked about this a bit, conservative seminarians who are who are distraught and lost uh, at the changing seminary formation. Uh, they're seeking Archbishop Lefebvre's advice. And he does try at first to locate some places that are more or less okay. The French seminary in Rome, um, the Lateran in Rome, I think Father mentioned Freiburg in Switzerland. And all of these eventually prove less than ideal. So, uh, you know, at this point, he even has priests coming to him saying, you know, at this point, he's 65. Uh, the even priest friends saying, you know, you need to start a seminary. And so Archbishop Lefebvre decides to leave it up to Providence and he goes to see uh, the Bishop of Freiburg in Switzerland, Bishop Charrier, with something, something of a friend. And in June of 1969, the Bishop of Freiburg does give Archbishop Lefebvre permission to found a sort of house for seminarians in that diocese. Um, and in October, the first seminarians arrived. I think there were nine of them at first, seven seven from France, one from Switzerland, and one from Argentina. So it is technically an international seminary. Uh, and at the same time, he uh, he approaches the Bishop of Sion. That's where a cone is. And he approaches that bishop about maybe a year of spirituality or ideally even a full seminary. So in May of 1970, now we're getting close to the actual birthday. May of 1970, the Bishop of Sion does approve a preparatory year at a cone. Uh, and in July of 1970, Archbishop Lefebvre drafts the statutes for what will become the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, August of 1970, the Bishop of Sion, uh, sorry, the Bishop of Freiburg authorizes the foundation of an international seminary. It was all formalized on November 1st of 1970, which is, as I mentioned, that's the birthday of the Society of St. Pius X. Um, Father Reed mentioned it, but I'll repeat it because it's worth repeating. The purpose in the statutes is it's very simple. Uh, the charism was to maintain and defend the Catholic priesthood and everything that pertains to it, which obviously includes a traditional seminary formation and, of course, the traditional mass. And so this, okay. so, so this all starts November 1st, 1970. It seems like things are going pretty smoothly right. at this point. Um, 
but we all know that there are problems coming. When, when do these, when does he start to see some, some issues or, or some difficulties arising? Yeah. So they, they kind of start from the beginning, even if they're lower level at first. And probably the first thing, which is, is purely, uh, let's say, practical or personal, is that uh, Bishop Charrier, the bishop who gave Archbishop Lefebvre permission to found the society, he, he resigns shortly mm-hmm. after doing so, um, which has not, it's not, he had, it had nothing to do with the society as such, but the new bishop was not as fond of the work at a so that just creates a little bit of friction uh, from the beginning. Uh, and really, the dispute centers around this question of what's called incarnation. Uh, because if you're basically a cleric in the Catholic Church, you have to be, um, you have to belong or yeah, technically, inc- you have to be incarnated into a diocese or a religious order. You can't be what they call a vagus, wandering cleric, right? You have to, you have to belong to someone. And uh, the problem was that this new bishop uh, refused to incarnate the members of the society into the Diocese of Freiburg, which is what Bishop Charrier, his predecessor, had been doing. And that simply meant the archbishop had to find someone else to do that, someone else to incarnate his priests into uh, yeah, a place. Um, and in those days, in ni- yeah, the early, yeah, 1970, he, he still had enough sympathetic bishops, there were still enough friends who were willing to incarnate the early members of the Society of St. Pius X. Um, but the archbishop knew that, you know, the only solution would be to go to Rome and sort of, let's say, take it to a higher level because uh, there's something called pontifical right, which would allow the archbishop to incarnate clerics directly into the Society of St. Pius X. So um, Archbishop Lefebvre knew he had to go to Rome and ask the necessary authorities so that he would avoid all this mess that he was experiencing on the, the sort of diocesan level. Um, so in February of 1971, so, you know, we're talking about a matter of months after the society was founded, um, Archbishop Lefebvre goes to the congregation of the clergy, um, and there were signs of hope. Cardinal Wright, who was the prefect of that congregation at the time, uh, even issued a decree praising the, well, the statutes of the society, but he kind of, uh, he leaves the question of incarnation to the side for the time being. Um, but Archbishop Lefebvre sort of, uh, keeps going. He writes again in May of 1971, November of 1971, um, and even one of his spiritual conferences to the seminarians. And so this is about a year, this is November of 71, about a year after the society is founded. Um, he tells the seminarians the project is being studied, but the sacred congregation for religious seems to be holding back. Uh, anyway, he writes again in February of 72, uh, and it does seem at this point like Rome is ready to grant pontifical right to the society. But then there's this, uh, yeah, in April, there's an American journalist who writes to Cardinal Wright and basically says, you know, is it true that you're planning on uh, supporting Archbishop Lefebvre's seminary? Because I'm paraphrasing, you know, he doesn't respect canon law and, you know, he's only coming to you because he doesn't like the way things are going out there. Um, now, for whatever reason, who knows if that's why, but Cardinal Wright uh, after this withdraws his support. And so there was never, the, the, the question of pontifical right is then abandoned because it was clear it was a dead end. Um, so, so even though the seminary was started, it's not a religious order. You know, it's not a, it's not a congregation. And so canonically speaking, the, the priests are in a little bit of limbo. The priests, once they are ordained after the seminary, they're, they're kind of in a, I don't want to say a legalistic limbo, but how would you describe that? Yeah, so I think they are technically a religious congregation, but I think the idea was that um, in the beginning, these priests would come to a cone from different dioceses, get a traditional formation, 
and go back to their home dioceses where they were from, where they would say the traditional mass and uh, yeah, so on and so forth. So anyway, pontifical right is abandoned, but vocations are exploding. So, uh, and this is not just coming from Europe. This is from America, England, Scotland. Uh, there were 27 seminarians that arrived in 71 and 35 more in 1972. Um, and so Archbishop Lefebvre now starts, he's getting all these speaking engagements from around the world. People are curious. Um, you know, it's the only institutional uh, sort of uh, defense. Oh, it's, it's the only place you can go to learn the traditional mass in the institutional church, right? And so uh, he starts going around the world and he starts speaking um, this is something that will last for many years, really, until his health uh, declines. Um, and I'll just I'll share it's I, I think it's it's beautiful in its simplicity. I, there's plenty of examples, but um, this is from a talk he gave in 1973. Uh, getting a little bit ahead of myself, he he was asked for advice in those days, and he simply said, "Keep the faith without compromise. Read the Catechisms of the Council of Trent, Saint Pius X. Have confidence in God, and don't be bitter." It's really. It's, prof- it's profoundly beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, back to the narrative. In 1972, Cardinal Taviani, um, his old friend, had uh, he encourages Archbishop Lefebvre to found a house in Rome. Um, you know, it was, it was traditional for every religious order, congregation, diet, or not diocese, but country to have some house in Rome. Um, and that house was canonically erected in Albano in 1974, sort of a suburb of Rome, mm-hmm. south of the city. Um and I think it's important to keep in mind, especially because of what comes later, that in these days, uh, you know, the society is erecting houses canonically uh, in dioceses all around, and they're incarnating priests from the outside. So now, this is all above board, even if there are you know, some tensions. Uh, 1973 sees the opening of a seminary here in America. Uh, 1974, uh, by 1974, there are already over 100 seminarians, uh, and then he's getting, at this point, interestingly, he's getting requests from bishops uh, around the world to send them priests. So bishops from Italy, Argentina, Gabon, asking Archbishop Lefebvre to send them priests. So again, I bring things like that up just to show the contrast between the early 70s and what comes what comes later. So mm-hmm. um, until 1976. Archbishop Lefebvre never performed an ordination without the proper ecclesiastical permission, right? But it's uh, at this point, you know, there is a lot of opposition to his project at Acone, especially among the French bishops, uh, not exclusively by any means, but the French bishops really are um, creating problems. And one has to say that it's true that Acone was a sign of contradiction, right? Other seminaries were closing, they were losing vocations, they were abandoning uh, traditional studies, and the cone is growing at the same time. So even on a human level, you can see how this is this is leading to a sort of uh, conflict. And so, can I can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Why is there this? Um, and I know you don't know the motives of other people, but I I, I kind of continually ask this question uh, in some way or another throughout the entire thread of this series we're doing, and that is why. And specifically here, why is there this conflict? Um, between the the bishops, you know, you said the French bishops and and what Archbishop Lefebvre was doing, everything was above board. Uh, it seems like the conflict today in 2021, or you know, in the 90s or in the early 2000s, seemed to be, well, they're disobedient, well, they're quote unquote schismatic, you know, all those things. None of that is the case here. This is all above board, as you said. This is all with proper authority. So, yeah. why is there this conflict? Is it he's not doing 
what the Pope wants him to do, or he, is it jealousy, or is it what's their? I think one can only speculate, but sure. it seems that that Archbishop Lefebvre and Acone and the Society represented everything that they tried to get rid of, you know, and at mm-hmm. the council with the liturgical reform. And in that sense, it was uh, not to be tolerated because, okay. you know, victory was supposed to be universal and complete. And uh, so, um, so a cone is continuing to grow. And then, and then we have, we have this uh, event in 1974. Yeah. So because of this tension, uh, Rome decides in November of 74 to send two apostolic visitors to a cone uh, on behalf of the Roman congregation. So these are official uh, delegates and their job is to go and see what is being taught at a cone to talk to the seminarians, talk to the professors. Um, again, an apostolic visitation is something that is, is normal in the life of a religious congregation or order. Um, we'll see this again, <clears throat> an apostolic visitation, uh, which is a little bit different, but um, with, because it, it involves a cardinal in 1987. But the idea is this is not in itself, a, a you know, abnormal, but um, I forget if they were Dutch or Belgian, uh, maybe one of each, but they were exceedingly liberal. And so they come to a cone and they start expressing all of these uh, heterodox ideas, you know, doubting the physical resurrection of our Lord, um, insisting that, you know, a married clergy in the West is inevitable, um, you know, truth can change. And so, you know, they, they go back to Rome, they leave, and the seminarians are kind of scandalized by this, right? So, of course, Archbishop Lefebvre, um, he's not thrilled about it either. So this is what leads to the famous Declaration of 1974, which probably everyone has seen or or heard parts of. I won't read the whole thing because <clears throat> it is known. It's online. You can you can find it anywhere. But it's it's the famous one that you know says we hold fast with all our heart, with all our soul to Catholic Rome, guardian of the Catholic faith and of the traditions necessary to preserve this faith so on. And we refuse, on the other hand, and have always refused to follow the realm of neo-modernist and neo-Protestant tendencies. Uh, and it goes on. But the most important part really is, is the part that, to me, that says, that is why without any spirit of rebellion, bitterness, or resentment, we pursue our work of forming priests with the timeless magisterium as our guide. We're persuaded we can render no greater service to the Holy Catholic Church, to the sovereign pontiff, and to posterity. So if you ever wondered where that declaration came from, it was not out of a vacuum, it came directly as a response to uh, to these visitors. So Rome gets the uh, the report of the apostolic visitors in January of 1975, and in February and March, um, Archbishop Lefebvre goes to Rome to discuss these findings with uh, with Rome. And so uh, I don't know that he ever actually got a copy of the report, but it's clear that it was negative because in May of 1975, Archbishop Lefebvre is told that the approval for the society is going to be withdrawn. So Archbishop Lefebvre appeals to the Signatura, the, that's the sort of, they handle questions of canon law, and the CDF, which handles questions of doctrine, um, and neither appeal was ever heard. Mm. So that comes, that's an important part for what is about to come, but um, again, to your point and your question you just asked me, Archbishop Lefebvre was playing by the rules, by the books. Um, and if that, if it were simply a question of that, then I don't think we would be having this conversation. So uh, he's appealing 
And then in June of 1975, so June is sort of in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, that's the month of ordinations, right? So Archbishop Lefebvre in June of 75, he proceeds, he ordains bishops, or sorry, not bishops, priests and deacons for the, bishops come later. He ordains priests and deacons for the society in 75. And this um, this causes Paul VI to write to the Archbishop personally, um, encouraging him to, to accept the suppression, right? You are suppressed, um, just, just accept it. Um, and this is the letter, you know, he, he encourages Archbishop Lefebvre to accept Vatican II. And this is the letter in which there's another famous quote, but this is the source of it. This is the letter in which Paul VI says something like Vatican II, in some ways, is even more important than the Council of Nicaea. So, uh, you know, at this point, uh, from the perspective of, of Rome and people on the outside, the society is suppressed, right? It, it's it's, yeah. it's done. Um, but... Uh, you know, Archbishop Lefebvre marches on because he maintains this is illegal. He's waiting for an appeal. So he keeps going. He opens uh, another seminary in Germany. Uh, and then, uh, you know, just maybe to, to put the icing on the cake, uh, in October of 75, Cardinal Vio, uh, who's I think Secretary of State at the time, he writes to all the bishops of the world telling them, you can no longer incarnate members of the society. So this is just another, you know, pushing the envelope a bit. Um, and so at this point, Archbishop Lefebvre decides the only way to solve this is to meet with the Holy Father personally. He's got he's to go directly to the top. I have a quick question. On the, uh, on the note where you said he's trying to do everything everything above board and he's saying that the suppression is illegal. He's not just right. saying, well, you didn't do what I wanted. I'm just going to keep going. He's saying that according to, and I don't know if this is canon law. I, I don't know enough about this stuff. Yeah. But, but broadly speaking, he, he is allowed to have an appeal, and that was never granted to him. So is that what he's that kind of my, saying? That's my understanding. Okay. Yeah. And so – and again, this is, this is going to come up again when he finally does meet Paul VI. You're going to see that you know, there's, there's a sense in which Archbishop Lefebvre is, is kind of convinced maybe Paul VI doesn't have the whole story. Right. Not that he thinks Paul VI is necessarily sympathetic to, to what he's doing. But uh, this is when he decides, this is, you know, again, the fall of 1975, he decides, look, I've got to meet with the Holy Father. Uh, you know, it, going through middlemen and things is not, it's not working. And, but then there's this back and forth because Paul VI says, yeah, I'll, I'll receive you an audience if you change your views first. Um, and so that kind of just everything ground to a halt. Um, and really, this, this leads to June of 1976, which, again, we're back to what is ordination season and everybody's kind of watching to see what Archbishop Lefebvre will do because yeah, he's, he's going to ordain priests for a, for a suppressed society. It's not, it's not clear. Well, but um, a priest arrives um, asking Archbishop Lefebvre to say one new mass and with the assurance that if he says one new mass, everything will be smoothed over. Of course, Archbishop Lefebvre said no. And he goes ahead and he ordains the priests and deacons in 1976, um, which, again, now, by from Rome's perspective, now he is suspended, which forbids him from any future ordinations. So um, I want to pause here because 1976 is, I think, a bigger deal than most people imagine. And I think part of that is because 1988 will eclipse it. You know, the consecration of bishops the, is, is a bigger deal objectively than this but it's also because it's farther back in history so maybe we forget how how important 1976 was right this again it's not 
it's not just that it didn't come out of a vacuum. It's that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of principles at play here that are especially relevant in 2021 as we go through. So I don't want to date the podcast too much, but uh, as sort of rumors and news swirl out in the traditional Catholic world, looking at 1976 is is uh, maybe more useful than than ever. So. Um, I'll just keep going with the history and then explain that a little bit because we're going to get to the meeting with Paul VI. Um, So July of 1976, Archbishop Lefebvre is notified formally that he uh, has not shown the proper signs of repentance. Uh, He went ahead and ordained priests without permission. So he suspended uh, Divini. So he's not allowed to perform any of the sacraments, technically, legally. Um, And this begins what uh, they call the hot summer of 1976, because, um, you know, on the one hand, the archbishop has been unjustly condemned. Uh, His attempts at appeal have been blocked. The opposition, it looks like the society has been canceled, right? right? Like what, what more can you do to the society at this point? And I think the expectation was that this is going to be the end of this group, right? We've, we've made sure that, you know, they're just going to go away. This is the end of, of this experiment. Um, but it really, uh, the, the summer of 1976 kind of proved the contrary because, um, you know, he's sort of, Arch- Archbishop Lefebvre is emboldened. He has the support of his priests and seminarians. He's confident in his work and he is traveling all over. Um, and everywhere he goes, uh, he t- tons of people come to see him. The media wants to talk to him. Um, it almost seems like support is growing for Archbishop Lefebvre. There's, there's a survey done, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, in August of 76 in France. And something like 27% of, of French people saw in the archbishop their own views, which, I mean, you might think 27% is low. But if you think of, you know, the tens of millions of people in 1970s, that's a, yeah. that's a lot of people. Um, and uh, and he never – it's yeah, I love the fact that he never really lost his humor because in July uh, – I'm just going to quote him. He, he sort of jokes, um, you know, when all is said and done, this suspension forbids me to say the new mass or to give the new sacraments. Um, I'm just kind of – <laughs> I think it's kind of clever. Um, but, you know, the, the hot summer of 76 kind of brings Archbishop Lefebvre into the limelight. He kind of he becomes a popular media figure in France. Um, <clears throat> he's got public officials rallying to his support. There's these open letters being written defending him. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's hard. To, it, it's clear that this is not right. going to go away. Right. Despite everything that has happened, the society seems to be growing. And then. <clears throat> August 15th, Archbishop Lefebvre receives a new letter from Paul VI. Now he does want to meet. So they, through intermediaries, they arrange something for September. But uh, there is one event that happens between there that I, just because it's uh, it's kind of famous. Um, there's some footage in the documentary we do. That's another thing everyone should watch. Uh, mm. You can even watch it free online now. Yeah. You can put a link there or something, right? Absolutely. Um, Anyway, so uh, on August 29th in Lille in France, um, Archbishop Lefebvre had been invited to do a big public mass. And so uh, it's funny reading, you know, headlines from the time. These are major French newspapers, right? These aren't blogs or anything. Right. Not that blogs existed back then. But, you know, uh, new step towards schism. Archbishop Lefebvre wants to create a global sensation with his mass in Lille on Sunday. Or the time for defying Rome has passed now for the test of strength. Or... Today, Archbishop Lefebvre defies Paul VI with a forbidden mass. So, yeah. Wow. They have, they have to keep changing the venue in Lille because more and more people say they're going to come. I think 7,000 people show up in the end. This is a relatively last-minute event. 
Um, and his sermon is worth reading in its entirety. It's beautiful. It's really, uh, it's, it's his explanation of why he's doing what he's doing. And I'm going to quote a little bit at length because it really, this is, this is about, I mean, we're doing the history, but it's primarily about Archbishop Lefebvre. So this, this sums up almost everything. Um, in all sincerity, peace, and serenity, I cannot contribute to the destruction of the church by submitting to the suspensions that are laid on me by closing my seminaries and by refusing to give ordination. When I die and our Lord asks me, what did you do with your episcopacy? What did you do with the grace of the episcopacy and the priesthood? I don't want to hear our Lord say you have joined with the others in destroying the church. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the truth. You must refer to what the whole church is taught. It is not I who judge the Holy Father, it is tradition. That is what I will ask, oh, sorry. If only every bishop gave us, gave the Catholic faithful a church, that is what I will ask the Holy Father. If he wishes to receive me, most Holy Father, let us carry out this experiment of tradition. So this is summer, hot summer of 76, leading into the, uh, shockingly, what Archbishop Lefebvre had wanted all along, which was an audience with the Holy Father. Um, so uh, September 11th is the day. September 11th of 1976 is the day that Archbishop Lefebvre and Paul VI have an audience. And Archbishop Lefebvre sends the Holy Father a note ahead of time hmm. um, saying, I did not intend to act against the church, still less to offend your holiness. I am sorry if your holiness has been hurt by anything I've said or written. So he's trying to, uh, you know, uh, keep the peace as much as he can. Right. And uh, they meet at Castel Gandolfo. And uh, something that's interesting here is that we have – we have the dialogue as recounted by Archbishop Lefebvre. I think it's in one of the apologies of Michael Davies, right? So as far as we can tell, it wasn't recorded. Um, but Archbishop Lefebvre gives his version of the story. And there were some over the decades uh, from 1976 to the present day who kind of um, questioned how objective Archbishop Lefebvre's sure. version of events yeah. were, right? Uh, he was both sides were biased. Um, and then a couple of years ago, somebody did release uh, sort of the minutes from Rome side. There was a secretary, there was someone who was keeping, again, not a, not a, a hard recording, but sort of yeah, notes. And they're, all, and they're not exact, but they're, they're pretty much the same. I mean, difference of wordings, but the same sense. And the reason I, um, I mentioned that is because there are, uh, there are some really telling parts. I'm just going to read Again, I encourage everyone to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read what to me is the most significant part, because there's a there's a moment where Paul VI says to Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, you're irresponsible. And so there's, there's a little bit of tension. Archbishop Lefebvre says, I'm continuing the church. I train good priests. And this is where things become clear. Paul VI says, well, that's not true because you make priests against the Pope. You make them sign an oath against the Pope. Archbishop Lefebvre, you can tell he's just, he's shocked. I do what? Uh, Most Holy Father, how can you say such a thing to me? Can you show me a copy of this oath? Most Holy Father, don't say things like that. You have the solution in your hands. Let me carry out this experiment of tradition. I truly want to have normal relations with the Holy See. And Paul VI says he'll think about it and pray and consult. But it's that moment where Archbishop Lefebvre is clearly just stunned. Somebody has told Paul VI, or he has the impression that Archbishop Lefebvre is having his priest sign oaths against the Pope. So uh, I guess on the one hand, that justifies Archbishop Lefebvre's fear or reason that he needs to go straight to the top. On the other hand, it doesn't really uh, practically result in much because 
1977, it's true, Paul VI does sort of, he launches a kind of theological dialogue with Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, there are some meetings, there aren't really, there's not much of an outcome. Um, sort of the last thing that happens uh, with Paul VI is uh, Archbishop Lefebvre is invited in 1978 to uh, come before the CDF. He's given by the CDF a kind of questionnaire on the council, the new mass, the new sacramental rites. Uh, and Archbishop Lefebvre responds with a, with a study, his, his response. But the summer of 1978 was crazy because Paul VI dies. John Paul I is elected. Then he dies. And then John Paul II is elected. So you have three popes within a very short period of time, which means there's a certain, on the level of relations between the Society of St. Pius X in Rome, there's a certain stagnation just out of necessity because 78 was a crazy year in the Catholic Church. Um, but it is worth noting that um, John Paul II is elected in October of 78. Uh, one of the, I mean, relatively speaking, one of the first things he does in November of 78 is he invites Archbishop Lefebvre to Rome. So again, very early on, there's a little glimmer of hope just because things had been so ugly under Paul VI that maybe this will be different with John Paul II. Now, we know uh, how that plays out eventually, but in 1978, you know, maybe this will be different. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of focusing on the, on the canonical side of things, or let's say the relations between Rome and the society. I will get more to the internal things of the society in a minute, but um, I'll just I'll finish up here because really there's not much on on the relationship side between 1978 and 1984. Um, 1984 is the year when John Paul II publishes the first indult. Right, this is the first time uh, since the new mass has been introduced that uh, there is certain permission, very restricted. As long you could say the traditional mass as a priest, as long as you had permission, you didn't uh, call into question the doctrinal. Uh, rectitude of the new mass. Um, and so, you know, um, there was, uh, this is not an, a quote from the archbishop, but it's something that he, uh, he agreed with. Uh, in short, the Roman indult enables those who wanted to suppress the traditional mass to permit its celebration by those who show that they have no reason to want it. Um, so, so you had, so to, anyway, you had to, I'm just making sure I understand the terms here. Um, and I'm looking at the notes that you've given me beforehand, so it looks like I'm reading. Yeah, um, yeah. Those who requested it, it did not question the legitimacy and doctrinal rectitude of the new mass. So if you – man, the parallels are crazy. Um, yeah. If, so if you want to say the old mass, you have to get permission from your bishop, and you have to say that the new mass is legitimate and doctrinally sound, which – yeah, they want to. They want to make sure that you are not using the traditional. The traditional mass isn't a sign of a deeper uh, uh, rejection of of the the sort of the the project of the past fifty years, and that's why I mentioned this is this whole time frame is very relevant to what's going yeah, on now. Um, yeah, but it's. I mean, it's not the first time that restrictions have been placed on priests who want to say the traditional mass uh, without. Uh, yeah, without from from Rome's perspective, any of the baggage that tends to come along with the traditional right. mass. It's probably a bad way of putting it, but you understand right. no, I get it. What, I, what I mean there. Um, anyway, so let's maybe shift a little bit to what's happening in the society because it, it is really again I can only scratch the surface with how much growth is going on at this at this time, right? Um, <clears throat> so just to back up maybe a little bit, by 1977, the society has 40 priests, 150 seminarians, and 20 priories. Um, which, I mean, that's, that's only seven years of existence. Um, 
1978 would continue the society's expansion in France, Spain, and America. Um, I think I mentioned uh, seminaries were opened in Germany and then another one in Argentina outside of Buenos Aires. Um, so, you know, far from being stagnant after the hot summer, the society is really growing by leaps and bounds. More clergy and faithful are finding a refuge uh, in the society, in our parishes and priories uh, at schools. Um, and then, of course, 1978 uh, saw the purchase of St. Mary's uh, College in Kansas. So um, that's where I'm recording from. So kind of I think it's the biggest it's the biggest society prior in the world. So, uh, oh, yes. Also, 1978 saw the founding of the Angelus Press. Also so. important. That's also very important. Very important. Um, 79, again, it's, just, it's a story of expansion at this point. 1979, uh, more expansion, especially in Switzerland, Italy, and America. Uh, 1980 saw the opening of the university in Paris. Uh, 1981, Archbishop Lefebvre makes this grand tour of North and South America. Uh, and then he goes to Australia, where he establishes the society there. Um, I know I'm jumping very fast through this, but 1982 uh, sees Father Schmidberger. Father Franz Schmidberger succeeds Archbishop Lefebvre as the second superior general of the society. They serve 12-year terms. Um, and uh, they opened a priory in London in 1982. So uh, 1982 sees 60 seminarians enter the society. And 1983, Archbishop Lefebvre ordained 28 priests and expanded into Ireland. And by 1984, there were 140 priests. Wow. So just that's a very quick overview of sort of what's going on. And I mentioned, you know, there wasn't much between Rome and the society between 78 and 84. But this is what's happening behind the sure. scenes, just growth pretty much everywhere. Um so it keeps going. And I, I mean, this will be the last thing because we're going to get into some other things. But, um, you know, 1985 sees more expansion, France, Germany, Ireland, Mexico, missionary expansion into India, Sri Lanka, uh, Gabon and Africa, where Archbishop Lefebvre had spent uh, a lot of his priestly and missionary life. Um, and uh, then you have also, uh, you know, at the same time, even though this is about the history of the society, you have these various congregations of uh, friendly Benedictines, Carmelites, uh, Dominicans, all also looking to Archbishop Lefebvre for, again, a sort of uh, safety in the storms, not sure what was going on in their own congregation. So there's a lot of groups who are working with the society at this period of time as well. So um, <clears throat> something happens in 1986, January of 1986, which will have uh, a tremendous impact on Archbishop Lefebvre's decision to consecrate bishops. And that is when John Paul II announces that he wants to hold a, uh, an ecumenical prayer meeting for peace in Assisi later that year. Um, you know, even before it happened, uh, which, you know, with all of the scandals that entailed, Archbishop Lefebvre considered it as such, uh, you know, participation in non-Catholic rites, um, and he judged it a scandal. Which, which it was, uh, you know, by allowing non-Catholics, I mean, it really comes down to this, by allowing non-Catholics to, to publicly show their worship to false gods, uh, what should Catholics think? Um, and that's, you know, that's, that was the basic position of Archbishop Lefebvre. So um, what will end up happening, and we're going we're gonna to get to that in a little bit here, is that um, he sees the crisis getting, getting deeper, Right. And he sees that he is getting older 
And so this is when the, the prospect of consecrating bishops as uh, sort of successors, uh, even though they're be auxiliary bishops, really starts to enter his mind seriously because, uh, you know, yeah, things aren't getting better. The society is growing. And if he dies, who's going to ordain the priests? Who will, who will be there to ensure that, um, you know, again, it's not just about the society, but that there's a future for the traditional mass. Again, we're, we live in an age where it's, uh, at least it has been relatively common for lots of cardinals and bishops to say the traditional mass, at least on certain occasions. Right. 1986, there's no one else, right? That was not happening. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this is our, so that's why, I mean, Archbishop Lefebvre is taking this very seriously, right? Um, and again, uh, this is now, no, no, there was never a question of conferring jurisdiction. Uh, you know, that I'm sure will be talked about in the next podcast. But he sees Assisi as a kind of sign that, you know, okay, things are coming to a head and I've got to make a decision. Um, and, uh, you know, the something else happens then shortly thereafter. And jumping ahead a little bit, because these are the two things together that really seem to to push Archbishop Lefebvre to, you know, insisting with Rome that, I've got to consecrate bishops before I die. And that's uh, this response to Rome to a dubia. So in 1985, a dubia is sort of a formal uh, list of, of questions or objections or doubts. Dubia means doubts. Um, and uh, I think uh, so in October of 85, uh, the society Archbishop of Feth had submitted to the CDF um, 39 doubts about religious liberty, which arguably out of all of the um, sort of disputed areas of, of the Second Vatican Council is, is probably the most clear, right? The the, sure. the difference between traditional doctrine and, and sort of dignitatis humanae is clear. So again, he did what he was supposed to do, right? They send a formal objection to the competent authority, the CDF, and they list, these are 39 questions we have. We don't know how to reconcile these. Um, and it takes a long time. It's not until March of 1987, that Archbishop Lefebvre gets gets a response from the CDF, and we do. By the way, this is this is available in English. We we publish it under. This is going to sound like this is all about promoting Angela Press books, but <laughs> it's it's published under the name Religious Liberty Question. So it's it's a little okay. bit more on the academic side. It's not an easy read, but if you want to see what was sent to Rome, you can you can read that. Um, now, I mean, it's funny because the response from Rome does admit that the new doctrine on religious liberty, in its own words, was incontestably a novelty. Uh, it did wow. claim it was the outcome of doctrinal development, which is, you know, uh, an argument that others have taken up since then. But, um, you know, it's so it's, it's July of 1987 that Archbishop Lefebvre replies. He, he finds the arguments of the CDF unconvincing. And this is the summer in which he publicly announces his desire to consecrate bishops, right? Um, the only bishop, of course, who lends his support is Bishop de Castro Mayer in Brazil, who is retired at this point, but still, he's the only, he's the only bishop who's willing to publicly, at least, um, support. And he does come uh, in 1988 and... Uh, not to spoil next episode, he does. Right. I think everyone knows he he does come and 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 participate in the episcopal consecration. So, um, you know, this leads. So again, you kind of see this pattern. It, it's unfortunate that um, you know there are attempts to, uh, you know, uh, get to Rome to talk to the appropriate authorities, and sometimes those are stymied. Sometimes they end up getting cast aside. So. 
What happens again in July of 1987 is that uh, Cardinal Ratzinger invites Archbishop Lefebvre to Rome after seeing this announcement that he's going to consecrate more bishops. And um, what they decide to do is send a cardinal visitor. I mentioned this earlier, uh, another apostolic visitation, but this time a cardinal to go to the houses of the society across, because again, 74, it's really just a cone, a few small things. 1987, you've got a worldwide organization at this point. Now, the cardinal can't go everywhere, but he, he goes to several, like he, goes all, he spends the better part of a month touring Europe. Um, and again, there's some footage of that in the documentary. So um, yeah, Cardinal Visitor is announced in 1987 uh, to see if a regularization is possible. So um, in October of 87, it's Archbishop Lefebvre's 40th Episcopal uh, Jubilee or anniversary, and he comments in the sermon. So this is, this is October of 87. Uh, there is a glimmer of hope. If Rome really wants to give us true autonomy like we have now, but with our submission, we would like to be submitted to the Holy Father, and we've always wished for it. If Rome agrees to let us try this experiment of tradition, there will no longer be any problem. So the cardinal that is that is picked is Cardinal Gagnon. He's a Canadian. He is the I think, the chair of the Pontifical Council for the Family, and he arrives in a cone in November of 1987. Um, uh, he was broadly sympathetic to the uh, work of the society. He was warmly received. Um, and yeah, as I mentioned, he he travels all across, not, not all of Europe, but he visits many, many houses of the society. Um, and then I think what is most interesting to me is that um, on December 8th, Feast of the Immaculate Conception, that's when in the Society of St. Pius X, priests, seminarians make their engagements, uh, you know, things like that. Um, and so he, Cardinal Gagnon, publicly assists in, in 1987 at a cone um, at the... Uh, yeah, he publicly assists at the, um, how would you say it, uh, the, the one, the masses of a suspended archbishop, and then witnessing young men making their engagements into a society that doesn't exist. It's kind of curious. But what's, again, very beautiful, he leaves this note in the visitor's book at the Seminary to Cohen saying, May the Immaculate Virgin hear our fervent prayers that the work of priestly training so marvelously carried out in this place might spread its influence widely for the life of the church. That is a different reaction than the society had in 1974. So again, as Archbishop Lefebvre said, a glimmer of hope. Okay. Um, January of 88. So I'm just, I'm just going to lay the groundwork for the consecrations okay. here. I'm not, I'm not going to get into the consecrations at all, but um, just to let you know what leads up to this. Uh, in 1988, in January, Cardinal Gagnon makes his report to the Holy Father. Um, again, apparently it was favorable. I don't think we ever got a copy of it, but judging from his what they talked about when he was there, judging from the note he left, it would be strange if it was hostile after that. Um, but there's still really no concrete news coming. So it's February of 1988 when Archbishop Lefebvre um, basically says, look, I'm going to consecrate bishops in June. Right? June of 1988 is, is kind of the deadline. Um, and he wants the approval of the Holy Father, but this is what he says. Uh, this is February of 88. I am resolved to consecrate at least three bishops on June 30th. And I hope to have the approval of John Paul II. But if he were not to give it to me, I would do it. I would do without it for the good of the church and for the continuance of tradition. Um, so, there's this back and forth 
in February of 88, where Cardinal Gagnon and others are trying to convince Archbishop Lefebvre to wait, to be prudent, to let things play out. Um, whereas the Archbishop was firm. June is it. Again, he's, he's old. He's, he's sick. Things are not getting better. They've been talking about this in certain ways for you know, over a decade. And I think he's hoping the deadline will force everything to to a head for a moment. Because it seems like Rome is not going to be doing anything unless they are pushed to do it. It, it happened with the public mass in Lille. It happens. I mean, yeah. and you don't want to put – generally speaking, you don't want to push the Vatican. That's not what you do. But <laughs> when it comes to something like this where uh, you're up against – you're up against the wall. Yeah. I'm not trying to put motivations in the archbishops. No, no, uh, or, no, or it's true. Motivations but, to him, but no, no, it's true. But as, as he alludes to in that quote I read earlier, um, you know, the, the duty of state of a layman is different than the duty of state of a priest, which is different than the duty of state of a bishop. And so um, I think, you know, it's easy to play armchair quarterback on a lot of theological issues. Um, but I think that's one of the things we need to remember is that, uh, he had a he had a different duty of state than than you and I. I mean, we can do podcasts all day, and that's you know, that's fun. Uh, but you know, we don't have we don't have the burden, the responsibility of being a bishop. Um, so so June thirtieth it is, and there's this back and forth in February of eighty eight. Um, but Archbishop Lefebvre is convinced, like we've got four months at least to settle this. I mean, everybody knows more or less where everyone stands. This is not none of this is really new. I think that's more or less his his position. There, there should be no reason to delay it past June. Um, so uh, March, Colonel Ratzinger says, "Okay, well, let's get together and basically exchange views. Let's try to get to a concrete proposal." And he. He asks both sides, so to speak, I hate to put it like that, but to bring one canonist and one theologian, and Cardinal Ratzinger says he'll chair these discussions himself. Um, so these meetings happen in April of 1988, and they will lead to what, uh, what becomes sort of the famous declaration of May 5th of 1988, right? Um, you know, in the biography of Bishop Tissier, uh, the big one, the original one. He does an admirable job of, of sort of describing this part. Um, and I encourage you to read it, one, because it's, well, it's, it's, it's an important piece of history. Two, because Bishop Tissier was one of the two experts that Archbishop Lefebvre brought to those meetings. So he is, he is writing from an insider's perspective, not just the, the historian's or the academic's perspective. And obviously, he was one of the four uh, men, one of the four priests Archbishop Lefebvre decided to consecrate. So for all those reasons... You should read the play-by-play -play here, uh, the, everything that led up to this declaration uh, in, in May 5th of 1988, because you sense how complicated it was. On the one hand, um, there was a certain satisfaction for the archbishop, right? Uh, he was allowed to critique certain elements of the council and liturgical reform. He was promised a bishop. Um, but then there's still a lack of clarity on some other points, and primarily the date of consecrating a bishop. So, um, so you have this, uh, this kind of strange um, atmosphere on May 5th of 1988, because uh, there is an agreement in principle, uh, but the question for consecration is left open. So what this comes down to for Archbishop Lefebvre is, is really a question of trust. Um, so the morning after signing the protocol, this has been May 6th, um, Archbishop Lefebvre sends a follow-up letter. And he basically says, yeah, this, this is really at the end of the day, the test of your sincerity, uh, you know, I insist on a date. And I'll just, I'll quote, I'll quote him, 
kind of at length because I think it's important. You know, there's a certain narrative that Archbishop Lefebvre signed the protocol on May the 5th and then immediately retracted it on May the 6th. I don't think that's quite accurate. I think it's better to say, or more, uh, I think it's it, it, it follows the historical record to say, yes, I signed the document on May 5th and then I asked for clarity or, or I asked for some precision on May 6th. So I'll let him, this is what he says in his letter. The date of June 30th was clearly given as a deadline in one of my previous letters, I've given you a file concerning the candidates. There are still nearly two months to prepare the mandate, the mandate for the, the bishops to be consecrated. Were the reply to be in the negative, I would see myself obliged in conscience to go ahead with the consecration. Basing my actions on the Holy See's agreement in the protocol for the consecration of a bishop from within the society. The obvious reticence in your letters and our discussion with regard to the Episcopal consecration of a member of the society gives me legitimate cause for concern. There's one part of that letter I want to highlight because it's, it's incredibly important. Um, again, not to get too much into the, what will be the next podcast, but it's important to realize that, um, you know, uh, consecrating bishops without papal mandate is a serious thing. We never want to pretend like this is just something that he did lightly right. or or without consideration. Clearly not the case. But I think what people forget, I, I almost never see it mentioned, is that he clearly was operating under the principle that, look, you've given me, you've given me permission in principle. Right? You've said I could consecrate a bishop. We're haggling over a okay. date, which is very important, but you did technically give me permission. right? So I just leave that there because it is something that I, I never see brought up, and I think it's incredibly important when discussing the consecration. So anyway, uh, we're getting close. So I'm just going to – these are the last few things before the consecrations. Um, May 10th, he, he talks to his priests and says, the ball's in their court. I'm waiting for them to reply. June 30th is the deadline. My strength is failing. I would be endangering the future of the society by putting it off longer. So again, you see, this is this is his consistent. You know, this is he's he's just he's explaining where he's at. He's explaining why he can't wait. So um, really, from there, uh, you know, a week later, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger sends him another letter asking him to, you know, wait. Uh, no date. Um, they know that June 30th is the deadline. Um, on May 23rd, Archbishop Lefebvre does go to Rome. Uh, he meets with the Cardinal. And then, um, again, he gets a letter from the Holy Father on May 30th, again, accepting a bishop in principle, but asking to delay the consecration. So they, 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 yeah, June 30th is too soon, but still no, no date. There's no date given in, in response. So June 2nd, 1988 is when the Archbishop writes to John Paul II saying he's going to proceed. There's one last letter from John Paul II to him warning him that if he does that, it will be a schismatic act. Um, and despite some last minute efforts, what it really came down to was no guarantee of a date. Um, so that's where my story ends. In principle, they, in principle, they had all agreed. Um, so just to kind of take a – yeah here in the last few minutes, just to kind of take a broad view of this. Um, I hadn't thought about it this way before until hearing you tell this all in sequence. Rome knew exactly what the society and what Archbishop yeah. Lefebvre was all about for many years. They knew ahead of time, you know, in, in 1987, he made it public that he wanted to do this for the, these specific reasons. They came to an agreement in principle. They had meetings. Um, it, again, it seems like things were going pretty smoothly. 
And I'm asking you again to put motives in, in someone else's or attribute motives to someone. Why push the date back? Do you think it was going to be a bait and switch? I mean, we never want to accuse the Vatican of doing a bait and switch. I can't think of any um, other reason, though. Yeah, I, I mean, again, it's it's pure speculation, right? Um, I think that from their side, they also, just like Archbishop Lefebvre saw, saw Rome as kicking the can down the road, right? So, uh, yeah, we'll get there. You know, uh, we need to look at more candidates. We need to, you know, make sure that every everyone's on the same page. Um, I, you get the impression from some in in Rome that, uh, you know, throughout these time, oh, throughout, yeah, again, between 76 and 88 in particular, or maybe 75 and 88, that, you know, maybe Archbishop Lefebvre wasn't exactly holding up his end of the bargain somehow, right? Because again, June 30th is, is everybody knows that. The media, the Catholic world, Rome, the society, everybody knows that's the deadline. And everybody knows why it's the deadline. It's not like it's an esoteric or, or random date that he picks, right? It's uh, He picked it because, again, June's ordination right. season. It was the day after what was going to be the ordination of priests anyway. Um, and so, you know, why not? Everyone's going to be there anyway. Um, and I think especially after after the May 5th protocol, um, you know, Rome, I think, seemed to think that uh, everything was more or less fixed, right? We've settled it all. Every We have, we have a framework for an agreement. And... Um, and I think, I don't know, they, they were maybe annoyed that he kept, that he came back and said, I really, really want that date. But it is mysterious. It's, it's mystifying, rather. It's not mysterious. It's mystifying why they wouldn't. If they really wanted to avoid a schism and they really wanted to avoid, um, you know, what did happen, again, just like 76, everyone assumed after 88 that the society was just done. Because now you have labels like schism and excommunication, which is you know, about as far as right. you can go. Um, and again, the opposite happened. So, uh, again, I, motives are always the trickiest part of doing historical analysis. And sure. I mean, sure. you can go back and read again, uh, in another, another book that you can go back, especially around 88 is a book called Archbishop Lefebvre in the Vatican, which is really not so much a book as it's a collection of documents, right? So it's, it's, I think all the correspondence that goes back and forth in this time period between Rome and the society. Um, and that's interesting because, you know, I guess you can read their own, you know, you can read John Paul II, you can read Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, and I guess you can take away whatever you want from it. But um, yeah, it's true that in that sense, uh, you know, one, Arch again, I'm, I'm not trying to get into the next podcast. Archbishop Lefebvre certainly didn't surprise anyone when he consecrated bishops in 1988. Um, one can say he made more than an honest faith effort to try to work everything out so that, you know, he wouldn't be, uh, you know, put in the corner of having to do this without, you know, the normal permissions. And, and three, I, I don't think that you can escape the fact I, I just all sort of emphasize again, you know, he had permission in principle and that's, uh, you know, that's not nothing. So, um, right. You know, pass the baton. That's very interesting. Um, Thank you. And, and again, the parallels are, are striking. But um, our next episode, and it may be next week, it may need to be delayed by a little bit. We are still working on a couple things. But uh, the next episode is about the 1988 Episcopal Consecrations. So um, this is a, this is a very good lead up into that. So, uh, Jim, thank you. Oh, and we're going to be putting the notes on uh, and links to the books that you mentioned um, 
and you know other resources here on the bottom in the YouTube description and also in the podcast notes. So uh, if you want any of that, again, I'd, I'd highly recommend uh, checking out some of that. Um, Jim is happy because he gets a kickback. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, because of Angelus Press. <laughs> it supports Angelus Press. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, in any case, more information is there. Jim, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks. All right. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 41 of the Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next week, we'll be looking at the 1988 Episcopal consecrations. Were they justified? Were they against canon law? Were they schismatic acts on the part of the Archbishop or the four bishops themselves? What should we think of the response from the Vatican, the document Ecclesia Dei Inflicta? Are we far enough removed in history to make a historical judgment? We'll discuss all of those topics and more next week. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and to the SSPX News English YouTube channel so that you won't miss next week's episode or any of our future ones. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.